This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. Ireland did not promise anything, but they received the letter and said they are taking it in and they are going to supervise it, go through it and possibly give a reply in due course. That's my colleague Medina Daouda in Abuja reporting on a protest to Nigeria's election body. Details coming up also. A UN report indicates the human rights situation in Eritrea shows no sign of improvement. And the World Bank says solar mini-grids can help tackle sub-Saharan Africa's energy crisis. These stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Nigerian presidential candidate Atiku Abubakar of the People's Democratic Party, PDP, led a protest today to the headquarters of the Independent National Election Commission, INEC, in Abuja. Reports indicate his supporters, dressed in black, marched to the INEC headquarters in protest against the just-concluded presidential election that saw the all-progressive Congress candidate Bola Tinubu declared winner. I reached out to Medina Daouda, our VOA Abuja bureau coordinator, to brief us more on the matter. The presidential candidate of the People's Democratic Party, Atiku Abubakar, and his vice presidential candidate, Ifaini Okowa, and also the chairman of the People's Democratic Party, Iyotia Ayu, led a whole team of people, multitudes of them, to the INEC headquarters here in Abuja, protesting the elections of the 25th of February, 2023. What they are demanding from INEC is to cancel the election completely. The chairman took a letter to INEC, which was received on behalf of the chairman, Mahmoud Yakubu, by the Commissioner of Voter Education, Festus Okoye. In the letter, PDP is asking that the entire presidential elections be cancelled so that a fresh election can hold. That is what they demanded. Traffic was held up at the INEC headquarters. It was a whole lot of multitudes of people that went for this protest. You'll find old people, middle-aged people, and the youth that even outnumbered those elderly people. INEC did not promise anything, but they received the letter and said they are taking it in and they are going to supervise it, go through it, and possibly give a reply in due course. Uh, Medina, any movement from the OBCAM? Some four or five days ago, the obedience team, led by Dr. Yunus Atanku, held a peaceful demonstration. That was just some few days after the elections. They held a peaceful demonstration in Abuja. But subsequently, most of the protest marches are being held across the country in various states, pockets of protest marches that are being reported on social media and, of course, conventional television and radio stations. The latest one is that of the PDP that was held today. These protests by the OB camp earlier and uh, by Abu Bakr's uh, camp now, is this a lack of faith in the judicial system? Already the court challenge is being heard, right? Yes. The appeal court has given the PDP and the Labour Party the permission to inspect the electoral materials for the presidential elections of February the 25th. But despite that, 
they are going about holding protest marches. This time, they are calling for total cancellation of the elections completely. Despite the fact that they are being given the go-ahead by the appeal court, which is second in command to the Supreme Court, to go and inspect the electoral materials that were used, it is a little bit of a surprise to all of us press people. Despite the fact that Atiku Abubakar told us at a press conference on Thursday that it is the right of Nigerian citizens to stage protest marches on anything that they are displeased about. So he encouraged this protest. He even joined the protest, which is to show that the Nigerian constitution is giving everybody the right, is giving everybody the freedom to voice out his or her own complaints during protest marches. It was a very, very peaceful demonstration. Nothing remarkable happened. There is nothing like shooting or tear gassing or anything. They went about it peacefully and they concluded it peacefully. And and finally, uh, Medina, uh, Bola Intubu, you know, the ruling party, which received 37% of the vote to win the election. What is that camp saying right now regarding the protests? What the AP camp led by uh, elected president Bola Tinumbu is saying is that all the opposition parties should forgive what happened, forgive the INEC, even if they are displeased about some few actions of the Independent Electoral Commission, and come to join hands with the APC-led government to carry Nigeria back to its lost glory. That was Medina Dauda from VOA's House of Service. She, she spoke with me from Abuja. United Nations experts report the human rights situation in Eritrea remains dire and shows no sign of improvement as the government continues to violate the rights of its people with impunity. The country's human rights situation was reviewed at the UN Human Rights Council today. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. UN Deputy High Commissioner for Human Rights Nada Al-Nashif says her office continues to receive credible reports of torture, arbitrary detention, enforced disappearances, and other human rights violations in Eritrea. She told the Human Rights Council Monday that thousands of Eritrean political prisoners reportedly have been jailed for decades. She said hundreds of religious leaders and followers have been arbitrarily arrested and harassed because of their faith. She added, all these human rights violations are committed with complete impunity. No person has been held accountable for the human rights violations documented by the Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights in Eritrea in 2016 and in 2017, which found that Eritrea had committed crimes against humanity, including enslavement, imprisonment, enforced disappearance, torture, and other inhumane acts, persecution, rape, and murder. The report condemns the forcible conscription of Eritreans, which it notes intensified during the Tigray conflict in northern Ethiopia. It said conscripts remain subject to indefinite military service, often in abusive conditions, and conscription remains the main reason Eritreans flee the country. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, reports at the end of 2022, there were more than 160,000 Eritrean asylum seekers in Ethiopia and over 130,000 Eritrean refugees in Sudan. 
The special rapporteur on human rights in Eritrea, Mohamed Abdel Salam Babiker, said since November he has received many reports of intensified government roundups of young people into the national service. Witnesses have also reported to me the increased forced conscription by the military and security forces who have been entering and searching houses for this purpose. Many families were evicted from their properties and forced to live outside their homes if they did not hand over or surrender their missing family members or relatives. Adam Osman Idris is first secretary of Eritrea's permanent mission to the United Nations in Geneva. He accused the United Nations and what he called hostile nations of relentless harassment of his country for more than 10 years. He said the appointment of a special rapporteur was unwarranted and linked to the hostile agenda of Eritrea's detractors. Idris said Eritrea continued to make substantial improvement in the fundamental rights and equality of its citizens. He said his government would persist in its development agenda despite what he called harassment from certain powers. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. A military court in Cameroon over the weekend chained a media, uh, charged a media mogul, a military officer, and a police commissioner with complicity in the January torture and killing of journalist Martinez Zogo. Cameroon laws state that crimes involving the use of weapons, especially guns, can be handled by a military court. Cameroon's president, Paul Bia, also ordered the military court to carry out the investigation into Zogo's debt, which led to media owner Jean-Pierre Amugu Belinga, a police boss and several officers, to be detained last month. Journalists in Cameroon are calling for justice despite receiving threats since Zogo's killing. And just days later, the killing of a radio host who was also calling for justice. Mokirwin Kenzeka reports from Yawunde, Cameroon. Cameroon media reported Saturday that business tycoon and media mogul Jean-Pierre Amugu Belinga, Lieutenant Colonel Justin Dangwe, and Police Commissioner Maxim Eko Eko are being held in a maximum security prison in pre-trial detention along with several policemen and civilians. A Yaoundé military tribunal charged the three men Saturday with complicity in the torture that led to the death of journalist Martinez Zogo in January. Zogo's mutilated remains were found five days after his abduction in the capital Yaoundé. Seven other suspects detained in a series of February raids, including one on Belinga's house, were released Saturday without charges. Richard Tanfu is a human rights lawyer and member of the Cameroon Bar Council. What to retain is the strong message that the Cameroon judiciary is sending to the national and international community that Cameroon is a state of law. Everyone can be held criminally responsible for his act. Even though they still benefit from the presumption of innocence, they are now henceforth known as defendants. And if after findings there are sufficient evidence, the charges may move from accomplice to maybe the perpetrators of torture on the journalists. But journalists in Cameroon say they feel like they are under attack. Just two weeks after Zogo's killing, the body of another journalist, Jean-Jacques Olabebe, was found in the capital. The radio host and Catholic priest had called for justice for Zogo and told journalists he was receiving death threats. 
Cameroon's government has yet to issue a statement on the death of Bebe. The Cameroon Journalist Trade Union says it has recorded scores of reporters saying they and their relatives have been threatened since the killings of Zogo and Bebe, and many suspect officials are involved. Royal FM reporter in Yaoundé, Mapala Zita, says she has received several hostile phone calls, the most recent one on Sunday. It's like we even end up being scared of executing our job the way it is supposed to be done. You're sending out the right information and then you're being, you know, threatened for it. Seriously, what we need is that the government should give us that liberty which we deserve so that we can practice in full freedom. Let us be free to carry out our job without any threat, without any fear of the unknown. Journalists say they have reported the threat to the police. The police have not said if investigations into the allegations have been opened or not, but told VOA that they will protect all journalists exercising their duties. Cameroon's communication minister and government spokesman, René Emmanuel Sadi, last week warned journalists against what he described as emotional reporting on the Zogo and Bebe investigations. He said there was no deliberate attempt to withhold information, as reporters are claiming, adding that any communication while investigations are ongoing are by law to remain confidential. Moki Edwin Kinzuka for VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Here's a comment from a listener in Zambia. Hello, VOA team. This is Innocent Mdolo from Zambia. Yeah, I really enjoy the radio station, VOA. Always the hits, the best for music, entertainment, and news. Keep up doing the good job, VOA the hits. And, for, and thanks for sharing your thoughts and for listening, Innocent. And if you'd like to share your comments about VOA and the news where you are, call up on WhatsApp, dial the international code, plus one, then 202-258-3076. That number again, plus one, then 202-258-3076. And check out VOA Africa for all your favorite programs. In a rare show of unity, business and union leaders in South Africa have come together to warn of the possibility of sustained and sometimes violent protests against the government in the near future. President Cyril Ramaphosa's administration is being criticized on multiple fronts, including its failures to provide basic services or stop crime and corruption. Darren Taylor reports. The CEO of Business Leadership South Africa, Busisiwe Mavuso, says South Africa could face protests similar to those that toppled governments in Tunisia and Egypt in 2011. Minister in the Presidency, Mondli Gungubele, told reporters on Saturday the government's engaging with business and other sectors about their concerns of possible unrest. Even as far as our information is concerned, we don't have that. We expect the engagements to continue because it has a potential to actually create serious problems in the country. 
Mavuso, however, says she fears for South Africa's future unless the state begins delivering proper services, repairs broken infrastructure, ceases corruption, institutes better economic policies that create employment and curbs crime. The leader of the Southern African Federation of Trade Unions, Zuelinzima Vavi, says it may already be too late to save the country from what he calls the storm to come. Our view is that we have now arrived at a failed state. I mean, there can be no worse situation a country can find itself in than what South Africa is finding itself in today. Once a supporter of the ruling African National Congress, Favi says he's fed up with decades of ruling party corruption, mismanagement and incompetence. When you have 82 people dying in your country every single day through violence, 135 women raped every single day, and when people are being held up in their homes and robbed in broad daylight, and when you know that your criminal justice system is no longer capable of responding because it is dysfunctional, and that the police themselves say that only 11% of the people accused of a rape ever get convicted. Your state is no longer capable of defending its own citizens. It cannot even perform the most basic function. As Vavi points out, South Africa has some of the worst crime numbers globally. The cost of living is rising rapidly, Yet the government continues to increase prices of services it often cannot deliver. Long daily electricity and water breakdowns are common. Vavi says those factors, along with one of the highest unemployment rates in the world, have fostered extreme tension in the country. South Africa's third biggest political party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, is spearheading a national protest action against state failures, on March 20th, Julius Malema leads the party. We are not scared of the state power. Let the state come with its power, will come with the mass power. There will be no school, there will be no university, there will be no factory, there will be no bus, no taxi, unless they are taking protesters to the picket lines. South Africa will come to a standstill. While he says the citizens march to the government's seat of power, the union buildings in Pretoria will be peaceful. He implied the marchers would resist if the government tries to stop them. We do this peacefully. It's our right. And if they want to come and violate our rights, they will find us ready. No one is going to intimidate us. If Ramaphosa does not resign on the 20th of March, then what will happen will be announced on the 20th of March. Presidential spokesperson Vincent Maguena says Ramaphosa has no intention of resigning. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. The World Bank says solar mini-grids can help tackle sub-Saharan Africa's energy crisis by providing power 
to underserved villages and communities. Speaking at a week-long conference of, uh, on renewable energy, a senior World Bank official urged African countries to support mini-grid operators in expanding their customer base in areas with no link to the national grid. From the Kenyan capital, Ruben Chama reports for VOA. In sub-Saharan Africa, about 600 million people still lack access to electricity. But experts say solar mini-grids can provide a lasting solution. Camille Noama is the World Bank Operations Manager for Kenya, Rwanda, Somalia and Uganda. We believe that mini-grids are poised to play a significant role in closing this energy gap. And we know this because new technologies such as remote monitoring, smart meters, have made it possible for countries and developers to deploy this at an unprecedented scale. Uh, Solar-powered mini-grids can be the least cost solution for providing affordable electricity to 380 million people in Africa by 2030. Some say solar mini-grids can provide high-quality uninterrupted electricity to nearly half a billion people in unpowered and underserved communities. Significant progress has been made in several African countries to expand use of mini-grids, as Noama explains. The deployment of solar mini-grids in sub-Saharan Africa has accelerated tremendously from about 500 in 2010 to over 3,000 installed today and already planned 9,000 additional grids. And they're also on track to provide this power at a low total cost of 20 cents per kilowatt hour and slowly bringing this down over time. This is lower than the true cost of power, actually, for many utilities across Africa. In Nigeria, for example, a market-driven approach to mini-grid development under the World Bank-supported National Electrification Project has sparked the deployment of more than 100 new solar-powered mini-grids. In several countries, such as Ethiopia and Zambia, new regulations and policy directives are making mini-grids more attractive for private sector investment. In Kenya, a combination of favorable policies and a robust business model based on public-private partnership is underpinning the World Bank-supported Kenya Off-Grid Solar Access Project, which is targeting almost 150 new mini-grids in areas with low electricity access rates. Davis Chirichir is Kenya's Cabinet Secretary for Energy and Petroleum. In sub-Saharan Africa, 568 million people still lack access to electricity today. This translates to 8 out of 10 people who live without electricity, making Africa the continent with the lowest access rate. In Kenya, however, we have great strides towards universal electrification. Our current connectivity stands at 25% of Kenyan households from a low of 23% or thereabouts in 2013. The meeting brings together key mini-grid sector stakeholders from across Africa with a focus on accelerating deployment of the technology. Ruben Chama, VOA News, Nairobi. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Iheyes Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. 
On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barrow, and our engineer, Zanab Abdel Rahman, thanks for choosing The Voice of America. Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM stations.